Welcome to Going Deeper, the podcast for leaders who are passionate about making work more inclusive, more authentic, and more meaningful, where we explore what it means to lead from your soul. Now here's your host, the founder of Deeper Work, leadership coach, Nick Dugan. Hi, everyone. My guest this week is Tanya Israel, author of the book Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide. Dr. Israel is a professor of counseling psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She's a researcher, educator, and fellow of the American Psychological Association. She leads dialogue skill-building workshops to help people connect across political differences and teaches about helping skills, leadership, and community collaboration. She has also facilitated educational programs and difficult dialogues on a range of challenging topics, including abortion, law enforcement, religion, and sexual orientation. This week, we're going deeper by talking with Tanya about how we can communicate effectively even if we disagree, especially when those disagreements involve our deeply held beliefs, such as in religion and politics. Tanya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this week. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Nick. Absolutely. I'd love to start by going back to the 2016 election. In your book that you've written, Beyond Your Bubble, that you talk about that being one of the instigating factors for why you realized this area was important. So I wonder if we might just go back there and have you tell us what was your what were you experiencing in the days and weeks after the election? What were you seeing and hearing that led to your realization that this that this was something that was needed for our country? Oh, that's a great question. So reflecting back on that moment of the 2016 election, I I was frankly surprised at the outcome, mm-hmm. as were many of the people in my circles. And that made me realize there's something that I'm missing. There are some people who are not on my radar and who I who make a difference and I don't really know much about where they're coming from. So I came from really wanting to understand more and recognizing there are a lot of barriers to that. There are barriers for me, but also it was really clear that as a country, we were having trouble connecting with people across the divide. And I'm a counseling psychologist. My research for 25 years has been on uh, interventions to support LGBTQ people. So I'm very much about how do we make things better? You know, I'm not just about let's study the problems. I'm like, what do we do about it? So that really motivated me to start taking some action and create some resources. And you share a flowchart that you created uh, in the book that was sort of one of the uh, the seeds of this this uh, process that became more fleshed out in the book. I wonder if you might talk to us about the process. Where did the idea come from? Come from for that? How was the uh, how was the birth of that flowchart? Indeed, the flowchart that will resolve all political <laughs> conflict in our country. I, um, what a great I title. <laughs> I'm optimistic like that. Truly. Yes. I, you know, and, <laughs> Reach and for the stars. Alert, like it has not actually resolved a political conflict. In our well, country. not everyone's seen it yet. <laughs> exactly. I think it's just a distribution issue. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so it is freely available on my website if people want it. So Yeah, we'll put a link in our show notes as well. It was something where I realized that people were not necessarily being intentional about the way they were approaching these kinds of conversations. So I wanted people to first think about, do you even want to have one of these conversations? Mm. And if you do, 
then what are you trying to get out of it? What are you trying to do? And and assuming that you're trying to understand people better and not just like, you know, lose your cool at them, then here's how to listen. If you're trying to persuade them, here are some strategies. If you're trying to find common ground, here's what you should do. So really trying to take people through a consideration of what are their goals for dialogue and given their goals, what's the best way for them to get there? Yeah. And how did you share that initially? So I developed it actually together with um, a, a student um, who was t- in in one of my classes, and we were developing resources to sort mm-hmm. of support people's resilience. And and then I was working with the uh, Santa Barbara uh, Progressive Coalition, and uh, we were meeting with people who were distressed about the election results and wanted to do something to support social justice. And so I realized that this was some of the audience for this flowchart. These are people who were distressed and were really floundering in terms of how to reach across the divide, and did they even want to? So I not just brought the flowchart into there, but I but I realized at some point that perhaps the flowchart's not actually enough. <laughs> um, but what would solve all political conflict in our country would be a two-hour workshop. Ah, so, yes, naturally, that's that's exactly what we need. So I developed a two-hour workshop that focused on building skills. So I, you know, I would say in the flowchart you can do these things, but mm-hmm. not everybody has those skills already. And I thought, well, maybe I can help people to to cultivate those skills for themselves. And in those workshops, so several hundred people went through those workshops. I kind of um, incubated it within the Santa Barbara um, Progressive Coalition and then started offering it um, in my community, but also places all around the country. People would say, well, you come do it here. And I'm like, sure. I just want to get it out to people. But I got to hear so much from people about the struggles that they were having with this but also recognizing the things that I could offer that people found helpful. And so from that process, I got a really good sense of like, what is it that people want and need and what's the best way to deliver that? And people were asking for more resources. And that's when I was like, well, okay, I guess I have to write a book now. Yeah. So that's how Beyond (laughs) Your Bubble came about. That's a wonderful story. I love that. And so timely as well. I think that's, you know, even though it may have been uh, initiated by the events of the 2016 election, obviously this polarization is continued. I'm sure it was around before that, but but this is such a timely topic. Why do you think people generally don't engage in these types of conversations with folks outside of our our bubbles, as you call them? I think some of it is a misperception of who we think we'll be engaging with. So it turns out that as human beings we have cognitive biases. And people seem to be more aware these days of um, confirmation bias, which is uh, the fact that we pay more attention to information that supports what we already believe to be true, and we ignore or dismiss information that conflicts with our beliefs. It seems like that's reflected in the media as well. They've got charts and articles about how we tend to pay attention to news sources that reinforce our existing beliefs. And there's you know, news that relays the same set of circumstances when through one lens of beliefs and news that shares it in the in the other set of beliefs. Do you feel like that contributes to this formation of these bubbles? Sure. I mean, people are choosing to pay attention mm. to, you know, different media sources that tend to 
present things that support their views. But the irony of this is that when I talk to people about confirmation bias, people are really good at recognizing it in other people, Uh, (laughs) but not necessarily themselves. I mean, it's hard for us to recognize how what we're seeing is only a small slice of what there is. And it's not even that it's wrong or fake news, but that it's an emphasis on different things and we're only being exposed to certain things. So for example, um, people who are more on the left are probably paying attention to news sources that, you know, in January showed a lot more of um, what went on at, um, at the Capitol on January 6th and the violence of it and all of that. People who are more on the right were seeing much more about what was going on in Portland, Oregon with protesters who were firebombing the police station. And people on the left weren't even necessarily seeing any of that at all. So it's not that either of those like were fake, like all of that happened, but we were only being exposed to smaller slices of things. And so there's more going on than, than we think there is. So in terms of what's keeping us from having these conversations, confirmation bias is one type of bias. But other biases will um, cause us to see people who disagree with us as being less informed than we are, more extreme than we are, and more extreme than they probably are. And also, we tend to view their morality through our own Uh, through our own values and our own lens, rather than understanding that people might have different priorities in terms of their um, moral foundations. There's moral foundations theory um, that that helps to provide information about that. So, So both cognitive biases and these moral foundations are skewing our perceptions of other people. And so we think that there are these like idiotic extremists who are violent and unkind and and don't have any morals who, and we're like, I'm not going to talk to that person. But we're just wrong. We're just wrong about who people are. That makes so much sense to me because I feel like that's been true in my experience where there's so much diversity uh, of opinion and perspective and background and, and morals in the groups that we're in, we just don't, we just don't talk about it. Right. Absolutely. And I, and I'm thinking now your listeners might be like, oh my gosh, you just said that I'm wrong. Like and they're <laughs> reacting to that. So, yeah. because they're like thinking of all the examples of people who absolutely fit that yeah. stereotype that they yeah. have in their heads. They're like, no, but people really are like that. So, so I just want to say one more thing about that, which is that, the people who are more extreme and do fit that stereotype more are the people who are most like to be likely to be represented in the media, who are most likely to be posting on social media. And so we assume that anybody who has voted like those people who have um, who are wearing the same hat, have the same bumper sticker, watch the same news source, are going to be like those more extreme examples that we see. So I'll say, yes, indeed. There are some people who are that, but most people are not. One of the things that I feel like people perceive is I, in my bubble or in my group, am willing to have these conversations, but they aren't. Whoever the they is, the other side of the political divide or folks from other groups that I disagree with or people that have different religious beliefs for mine. Do you find that that's true, that different groups of of people are more or less willing to have these conversations? 
And what is what have been the differences as you've shared these tools and uh, ideas with different groups of people from across the spectrum? Have there been differences in response or, or would you be surprised by how similar everyone's reactions are? Such a good question. And I hear this concern come up from so many people. Like, yes, I want to do this, but they don't. So the first thing I do is I say, well, let's go back to what your goals are. And and if you're really trying to understand somebody else, you might be able to do that no matter what they want to do, you know? So you can always keep asking them questions and exploring. Yeah, people love to talk about themselves. So. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that's one piece of it. The other piece is that not everybody is just coming to the table ready to do this because, you know, of course, not everybody's read my book. Once everyone reads my book, it's <laughs> the, the, the flowchart, the workshop, and the book. We've got the three-step exactly. plan here. Then everyone's all ready to do it. But sometimes we have to bring people along with us. And people are not always coming into this trusting each other because of conflict that either they've had with that person or with other people or what they've seen going on in media and social media. So sometimes we have to approach somebody and say, you know, I know we've had some conflict around this in the past, but I'd like to have a different kind of conversation. And I'm really interested in knowing more about where you're coming from. So sometimes we have to sort of broach it that way and then not just say it, we then have to do it. Mm-hmm. We then really have to be interested. We have to be non-threatening to another person too if we're trying to draw them out. Now, you might say, oh, well, you know, is that tone policing? Am I, you know, all these things? And it's like, well, it just depends what your goal is. If mm-hmm. your goal is really to understand and connect, then yes, you do have to be non-threatening. But people have more than one want. So you might want to understand them, but you also might want to just, you know, let your flag fly and and put it all out there. And then you get to decide what's more of a priority for you in that moment, in that relationship. But that's where I really want people to be intentional about how they're doing it. I'm going to say one more thing about this when you talk about like like who's open to this and who isn't. I don't even think that what distinguishes people is whether they are polarized on the left or right, but there's another kind of polarization I've learned about, which is called affective polarization. So it turns out that some people are more highly activated by the news and politics. These are the news junkies. These are the people you cannot have a conversation about, you know, a cake recipe, uh, you know, without it turning into politics. And so so these people are having more um more maybe highly activated maybe combative you know kinds of tone when they're coming into these conversations then there's the other people who they they may not be watching the news as much it may not be as much of a priority in their lives to pay attention to politics or they're just not as reactive to it they're probably more likely to be watching network tv than watching cable news and they do not want to have a conversation yeah. with the people who are really emotionally activated around yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. So that is a big place of polarization that we're seeing. And I think that that probably distinguishes much more who wants to and who does not want to have this conversation, depending on what the tone is of the other person. Yeah. I wonder if you might paint a picture for us, uh, sharing an example from your own experience of how have you employed these 
methods or tactics in your own conversations to have dialogue with folks that maybe come from different perspectives than than your own. Absolutely. And I think that this can be done at lots of different levels. It can be done sort of within, you know, a relationship of somebody you're really close to, like a family member. It can also be this very incidental, you run into somebody you've never met before and you start having a conversation. I'm thinking of just an incident where um, I was out wine tasting, as we do sometimes in Santa Barbara County. And I was with somebody else, but we met somebody who we didn't know, and they were wine tasting also, and they started sort of talking about some of the ways that, you know, they they didn't like some of the policies that were going on in the county around, you know, distance between um, the different businesses and things. And the person who I was with is a strong environmentalist and started saying, oh, but this is why we need these things. And, you know, this is important. And, you know, this other person, I said, oh, hang on just a second. Um, Because I have some questions for them. And so I started asking questions. I said, oh, I'm curious to know more about that. And so then they shared their views, you know, about why that was. And I said, oh, so this is what you think. And they said, yes. And, you know, then my friend who I was with wanted to talk more about environmentalism. (laughs) And so it was harder to get farther. But this, but this person who we had met was open to having this conversation and interested in having this conversation when I was interested in hearing more from them. Like it really does transform things. So it was a great example of having two different approaches to that dialogue of either telling somebody, oh, no, 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 you're wrong. This is the way to think about it. And really trying to connect with them and find out more about what what they think. I love that because it does very tangibly show the two different approaches in action. Although now I am wondering where wine fits in on the flow chart and if that improves or detracts from the conversation. I'll have to add another layer of the yeah. flow chart. <laughs> How much wine have you had? <laughs> if someone is interested in having a dialogue with someone, well, you, you say that first of all, you have to be clear about your intentions. Do you even want to have a dialogue? Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you might share a little bit about that. And then if someone decides they they do want to have a dialogue, where do they start? I always ask people when they come to workshops, what is it that you want to get out of dialogue? What are your goals? And reliably, there's a top four. Um, One is there's somebody in my life who I want to maintain a connection with. Some people say I want to convince or persuade other people. Uh, There are some people who want to heal the divide or find common ground. And then there are some folks who say, I simply cannot fathom how people can think or act or vote as they do. Now, I have learned now that that doesn't necessarily mean that they want to understand, but presumably that's their motivation. So it turns out that to do any of those things, to achieve any of those goals, what you need to do is to have a conversation that promotes connection and understanding. Mm. Because if you're not connected to somebody, then they're not going to care what you have to say. And they're also not going to want to share with you what they have to say. And promoting understanding is going to be important. If you're trying to persuade other people and you don't first really have a good sense of where they're coming from, you're never going to be able to do it. So connection and understanding are the keys. So how do we promote connection and understanding? The first thing is we've got to listen. And we have to listen in a way that's going to draw the other person out. And so the tricks to doing that are, 
first of all, give people some uninterrupted time to speak. And then while they're speaking, instead of thinking about, oh, what is it that I can say that's going to, you know, combat that point that they're making? Instead, think, what is it that they're saying, really? And then rather than sharing with them what you think, Share with them what they think. Say back to them. Summarize a little piece of what they just said. That's going to help them to feel understood and feel more connected to you. It's also going to make sure that you're paying attention and that you really do get what they're saying. So listening is an amazing tool that, you know, there's plenty of research that shows that um, listening can be learned and that listening is really healing. And so I think that's where it's just a little miracle tool that we have. The words that come to mind for me while you were describing that are humility and courage, because I feel oh. like when I've tried to practice those things, it does take humility to create the space. And you mentioned curiosity too, to create that space of curiosity, to feel like I am able and open to you know, turn down my opinion for at least a little while and create the space for someone else to share right? and, and really give them the floor and not feel like you have to jump in and, and share your opinion and encourage because I think that's hard, right? It's hard to initiate these conversations. It's hard to it's it's hard to do some of these things that you read in a book, right? I mean, you recognize, I appreciate you saying that reflecting back, for example, is not always easy and it can feel really awkward. And I remember you know, even back to when I was at UCSB, like doing these conversations in a role-playing setting feels very strange. Mm -hmm. And having the courage to try something new um, and even honestly to think about um, putting ourselves out there and and the fear of being rejected. Like what if I try to have this conversation and someone shuts me down or they make fun of me for trying to use these listening skills and uh, what if I do it wrong, right? So um that, that's what comes to me is like requiring a, a deep sense of humility and courage. I, I love those words. I think you've captured it so well in that. There, there's actually a literature on intellectual humility, which is, it's a subset of cultural humility, and it's really about curiosity and about the fact that you can hold strong, deeply held, even extreme beliefs, but be interested in and respectful of what somebody else thinks. And going in with that kind of stance is really valuable in having a successful dialogue. The courage piece that you talk about, so important because what often happens in those dialogues, and people are well aware of this because even when they're anticipating dialogue, they start to feel tense, they feel their blood pressure rising, they feel flushed, and that's really, we're kicking into fight, flight, or freeze response, mm. you know? Um, and because it feels like a threat when somebody disagrees with us. And sometimes they're going to disagree loudly or forcefully. But even if they're not, it can just feel like such a conflict. And it takes courage to stay with it and to stay in it. And I mean, I, I give people tools also for what do you do when your body is reacting that way. And there's physical things that we can do. I mean, the the easiest one to implement is breathing. Mm -hmm. Just some slow, deep breathing. I always talk about it as um, like you're blowing bubbles. I apparently love things about <laughs> bubbles. <So. laughs> Easy to remember that way. I know, right? So you just take a deep breath and then you breathe out slowly. Like you've got one of those little plastic wands and you're blowing a bubble. 
I love that. I love that imagery too, because if you think about, I've uh, done mindfulness meditations before where they suggest thinking of any thoughts that you kind of can't get rid of to think of thoughts as bubbles because they also float away, right? And that, mm. um, in addition to kind of the the breath practice is also letting it go, right? Like not holding on so tightly to these these things that we get so wrapped around the axle around. I wonder if just going off of that theme, I imagine that this work is not easy. I imagine the work of being a counseling psychologist and professor in general is not easy. And you work in areas that uh, do have conflict and, uh, you know, disagreements and you, and you are now sharing tools specifically to bridge those divides. What do you do in your own life, in your own work to stay grounded and to strengthen your own personal, spiritual, emotional foundation to be able to do that challenging work? Sure. Thanks for that question. I, I think sometimes about, you know, it, it can be difficult, but it doesn't always feel difficult. And so I've thought about what is it? Why, why doesn't this feel harder sometimes? And I've been practicing Buddhism for about 20 years. And I realize that that has been a really important practice for me to make this work easier. Um, there, there's a couple of different aspects of that. When I think about the foundations of my Buddhist practice, I think about wisdom and compassion. And the, the compassion piece has really been important in terms of just keeping my heart open to other people and not uh, making other people enemies. I love um, Pema Chodron has this great quote, the way to end war is to stop hating the enemy. And the thing that I love about Buddhism is, all right, well, that's easy to say, but how do you actually get there? And Buddhism's a practice. It's not just, you know, sort of pithy sayings, although there are those also, but it's really um, doing that every day and practicing that every day. And it strengthens that muscle. And I always recommend with any of these tools, tr- keep trying it, keep doing it. It's like a muscle that you can strengthen. And try things in low stake situations. If I start out trying compassion when I'm faced with somebody who is yelling at me and and has views that feel like they sort of annihilate who I am, uh, that's going to be hard to mm-hmm. start with. So so I'm going to start in a much lower stake situation and start it as a as a as a regular practice. The the other piece, the wisdom piece has been very important in terms of recognizing that my understanding of things is limited and it's a small slice of things. And I actually will benefit from having more of those slices available to me and other people can help to provide that. And so really being open to and eager to get other views on something that really that part of that curiosity really comes from my Buddhist practice. I love that. There's so much, I mean, you said wisdom, but there's so much wisdom in, in what you just shared. I appreciate that. I'm curious how you came to your Buddhist practice. You said you've been doing it for, for 20 years. I wonder if there's anything you might share about that journey for you. And then I'm also curious about your professional journey and how you came to the world of counseling psychology and academia and the work that you do now. Um, I guess the, the the bigger question is, do you find that those paths are related or, or are those kind of two separate paths for you? 
Hmm, that's a great question. I'm going to start with how I came to counseling psychology and and the work that I do there. I decided when I was 16, I wanted to be a psychologist. I took a high school psychology (laughs) class. I was like, that's what I want to do. (laughs) And then I also liked teaching. And so I wanted to do that. And then I had to do a dissertation, which, and I learned from that, that I liked doing research. So academia, like academic counseling psychology has been a really good fit and path for me. And I love the field of counseling psychology because it's very much a lot of the work around diversity within Mm -hmm. psychology has come from counseling psychologists. And so it's been really aligned with my views and values. Um, I started doing uh, research on LGBT issues when I was doing my dissertation. And like any good dissertation, it raised more questions than it answered. And so I just kept doing that. And like, like I said, I focus on interventions. I focus on how to make things better. And that has felt so rewarding to me. Yeah. But it's also brought me into situations where people have really different perspectives. I've done training for law enforcement. I've been in dialogue with people who have different religious views. And so I think that the work on LGBT issues has actually primed me for the work that I'm doing now on more specifically on dialogue across political disagreement. So let me bring in the Buddhism piece then. So I was going through a tough time in my life as we do sometimes, and I was sort of wanting to find something that would be helpful. I had a friend who had been practicing Buddhism and she seemed to be doing well. And I was like, what's this thing you're doing? And so she told me a little bit about it. I ordered a cassette tape that will tell you how long ago it was. (laughs) (laughs) I put it in my boom box (laughs) and I started meditating and I didn't Uh, have sort of a Buddhist philosophy around it or anything. I just started doing the things that they told me to do, and I just kept doing it. And after about a year, I started feeling better. Mm. And I was like, I wonder why. And that's what actually led me to be more interested in finding out about Buddhism. Because, you know, going into it, I just wanted something that would help. And, I, you know, so that had then led me to wanting to go to teachings, learning more, which led me to learning more practices, which I could do. And the the Buddhist center that I'm affiliated with in Santa Barbara, the the primary practice of that center is one focused on compassion. So it's mm. like when every Sunday you go and you spend an hour and a half like trying to be compassionate, eventually some of that sinks in. So I think it's taught me a lot about doing something again and again and again until it really feels like it gets into your DNA. And and then most recently, like you, I started a podcast during the pandemic because my friend who 20 years ago uh, had been practicing Buddhism, it turns out now is teaching uh, Buddhism. And so because it was the pandemic, I got to attend one of her teachings and I was like, oh my gosh, you're really good. And so I want more people to hear you. So this is how it's going to happen. And I said, you're going to, we're going to start a podcast where you're going to do a short teaching and then we're going to have a little conversation about it. And then I'm going to write a song about the topic of the teaching because that's a quirky thing my muse does. And then we're going to get my friend Heather to sing the song because I don't have a good singing voice. And then your husband's going to do a guided meditation. And she's like, 
okay. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> she was like, look, I've known you long enough that resistance is futile once you have a vision. So I was like, great. So we've been doing that now for uh, the past a uh, little bit over a year. And the wonderful thing about that is that I am getting, like, I'm receiving individualized teachings every month as we do this. But then I also work with those teachings to prepare for the conversation that we're having, to write the song. And what it's reminding me about is how important it is not just to expose ourselves to ideas, but then to really spend the time chewing on them and and digesting them. And so I feel like it's helped me to go deeper not just with my Buddhist practice, but to remind me to go deeper with with all the ideas that mm. that I'm exposed to that I that I value and and want to work with. Yeah, that's beautiful. You talked about a few different areas that I think really coalesce together in an interesting way about spirituality and conversation and dialogue and diversity. I'm curious about your thoughts on how that shows up in the workplace. A lot of folks who listen to this podcast are business leaders or folks in fields like HR, and there has been a much more visible, widespread conversation about diversity and conversation across difference in the workplace in the last 12 to 18 months, in particular since George Floyd was was killed. Obviously, it's been going on long before that. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious about your perspective about how everything we've been talking about shows up in the workplace. What would be your advice or suggestions for folks to think about who are wanting to have uh, both to address some of the deeper issues that are showing up in the workplace around systemic exclusion and oppression and making sure that our workplaces are equitable, as well as making work a place where we can have, you know, appropriate, but, but deeper and more open conversations and dialogue uh, because we don't leave our, our identities or ourselves at the, the, the door of the office, we're bringing all this to to work. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on how, how this shows up at work. Indeed, I hear so many people struggling with how to deal with these things in the workplace, um, struggling with, you know, conflict that might happen or with conflict that they're worried is going to happen or worried about how they're going to say things and how people are going to react to them and worried about like really wanting to do justice to the uh, institutional racism and other kinds of inequities in our society. So again, this is something where we each have our own slivers of understanding of what's going on. And the more of those slivers we can bring into the conversation, I I think the stronger our solutions are going to be. So trying to create a space where, where we can have dialogue and that is best done, not in a, social media setting, not in a, you know, I'm going to make a speech to all the employees here. It's really done best within the context of connection and and relationship. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's one of the best things that we can do in the workplace is try to set up opportunities for people to do that with some guidance or guidelines or, or tools, skills that they can build so that those conversations are more productive and helping people to develop more understanding rather than driving people into their own corners. The the other thing that I'll say is that, you know, these kinds of skills 
that that I've put in the book, listening, managing our emotions, perspective taking, how we share our own views, all of those things aren't just useful in when we're talking about politics, but they're useful for any kind of difference or conflict. People often tell me, wow, you know, this is like, uh, you know, what we should be doing in marriage counseling, you know, and all of these things like these. And it's true, like a lot of this stuff comes into play in so many realms in our lives. And so all of these skills are going to make us better parents, better partners, better colleagues and coworkers, better community members, all of that. And the the more that we can do that and come together across difference, the stronger the fabric of our society is going to be, the stronger our businesses are going to be, our campuses and schools are going to be. I I think that that this is a time of not just crisis and polarization, but really opportunity to be able to hone some of those skills that will make us better individually and collectively in the future. I love that. And I love the the practicality of it. Well, thank you for all the resources. The book is Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide. Tanya, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. It's been great. When you think about people who are passionate about creating inclusive, authentic, and meaningful workplaces, who do you think of? When you think of people who truly lead from their soul, who comes to mind? We're looking for thought leaders to interview as guests on upcoming episodes of Going Deeper. If you have suggestions, please email us at goingdeeper at deeperwork.com.